0: Hello and welcome to the Clinical Care Options and Global Medical Education, Psychiatry and Neurology podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Prakash Masan. Today's episode features Dr. Roger McIntyre, Professor of Psychiatry and Pharmacology at the University of Toronto and Dr. Joseph Goldberg, Clinical Professor of Psychiatry at the Icahn School of Medicine, Mount Sinai, New York. They will be discussing mood disorders, antipsychotics and tardive dyskinesia. This episode is part of a larger educational program titled Tardive Dyskinesia and Psychiatric Illness. For more information on Dr. McIntyre and Dr. Goldberg, along with links to other TD programs, including other podcasts and clinical thought medical commentaries, please visit the show notes. Now let's get started and hear what the experts have to say about this important topic.
1: Hello, and uh, welcome to our podcast. Uh, I'm Roger McIntyre. I'm a professor of psychiatry and pharmacology at University of Toronto. Glad to be with you in this podcast format, a format I very much enjoy. It's an opportunity for us as colleagues to really exchange knowledge and have a dialogue kind of a virtual roundtable dialogue about matters that are so critical for the patients that we provide care for. And today's topic is going to focus on TD, Cardiff dyskinesia, but more broadly, we're going to be talking about commonly encountered patients with mood disorders, prescription of psychotropic drugs, notably antipsychotics, and the topic of TD a bit more narrowly. And I'm very glad to be joined by my very good friend and colleague in New York, Joe Goldberg. Dr. Joe Goldberg, welcome. Dr. Roger McIntyre, a pleasure to be with you. Welcome to YouTube. Great, Joe. Uh, Great to be working with you on this. And uh, Joe, this is a topic that I know you know well, and I'll put a little plug in for your wonderful book that you've recently published, uh, and I strongly recommend it in terms of helping clinicians manage commonly reported side effects. I'm often asked, hey, Roger, how can I manage this side effect, that side effect? And I make myself look smart, Joe, by just quoting your book. Uh, so great job on the book. Here's a question for you. Let's get right down to it. So we're talking about mood disorders broadly. We're talking about antipsychotics. Have, has the prescription of antipsychotics in people with mood disorder, has it changed in the last, say, 10 to 20 years? Uh, we can now answer that question
2: empirically, yes. It's not just perception that do we find ourselves writing more prescriptions for second-generation antipsychotics. A very nice Um, database study in the American Journal of Psychiatry this past year was looking at changes in prescription patterns from the late 1990s through the year 2016. And among various classes, um, prescribing rates of atypical antipsychotics and bipolar disorder went up from about 12% to a little over 50% over a 20 year period. So Mm -hmm. we got about four or five fold increase nationwide in the use of atypical antipsychotics. And I think part of what we want to talk about today is is the reasons for that. There are many of them.
1: Absolutely. And I, I thought that was a wonderful paper, the uh, American Journal paper that you cited. And, you know, it's interesting because in addition to the rising trajectory of antipsychotics, there was in fact a decreased trajectory of some agents in mood disorders like, like uh, Divalprox or Depakote and even lithium. Frankly, the lithium one got me a little concerned, but that's a I don't like to see lithium dropping off, but the but but the antipsychotic rising trajectory. Uh, I'm going to conjecture, Joe. That's in part because of you know expanding indications in various phases of, for example, bipolar disorder, uh, a larger playlist, if you will, of treatment options that are available. It seems to me, and increasingly for some of these uh, agents, and certainly in some individual patients, clinicians are conceptualizing antipsychotics, at least some of them. As in quotes, mood stabilizers—that old legacy phrase that we have. So, with that in mind, with this rising, you know, prescription, are there other factors that are driving this other than what I've mentioned? Yes, yeah, so I think one other nugget in that paper, to me, which sheds
2: light on the, the increasing use of at least some atypical antipsychotics, is is the marked rise that was seen in antidepressant prescriptions, um, which you know were more than half of patients with bipolar depression being prescribed. And as many of us you know, talk about and dedicate our, our professional lives to, the depressed phases of bipolar disorder remain among the most difficult to treat. And the, 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 you know, our, our language needs to evolve along with our treatments. So the drugs we call antidepressants, at least the monoaminergic traditional ones, as yet have not been shown to have a robust effect in treating bipolar depression. For some patients, as we know, they carry the risk of destabilizing mood either in the short run or the long run. But regardless, I mean, imagine if, if you had this deadly disease, the depressed phase of which being dramatically higher than, than the high phase. And um, you, know, you go to your doctor and you say, I'm really feeling depressed. And, and they take a monoaminergic, anti, mono-aminergic antidepressant. And they would say to you, well, let's give you something that's never been shown to help your ailment before without the transparency and disclosure that no one's ever found a traditional antidepressant to be helpful. And when we look at the FDA-approved compounds that exist, all of them, at least in whole or part, contain an atypical antipsychotic, yet uh, they vary in the extent to which, as a class, they have antidepressant properties. The same way mood stabilizers, I think we might agree, vary in the extent to which they have antidepressant properties. We might compare, say, lamotrigine with uh, lithium or dival carbamazepine on the relative antidepressant effect. So um, uh, I hereby suggest that we talk about modifying our language away from terms like antidepressant or even mood stabilizer or even antipsychotic and and somehow adopt maybe something closer to the the ECNP neuroscience-based nomenclature or something that will connote drugs that will achieve a specific effect. In the case of bipolar disorder, the depressed phase being this big unmet need, we're looking at compounds that exert antidepressant properties that don't destabilize mood short or long-term and ideally may have some antimanic properties. And if that drug happens to be an epilepsy drug or a neuroleptic or an anesthetic or a sleep aid, I mean, nowadays we talk about a lot of molecular compounds that do or don't possess antidepressant properties. And so the use of atypical antipsychotics at least the subgroup that's been shown to treat the depressed phase, I think accounts for some
1: proportion in the rise of their use. Uh, Excellent points, uh, Joe. And I couldn't agree more. I think for us to have a more coherent nosology around psychotropics broadly would not just simply give us a more sensible, coherent language, but I think also would really provide organically a way of really separating out the various agents you know, you look at other areas, there's so many examples. For example, in cardiovascular medicine, you have ACE inhibitors, and you have diuretics, and calcium gamma blockers, beta blockers. It provides for a very organic dissection, very organic lines between the agents, which I think actually works against some of the confusion, which is a good thing. Um, What also caught my eye in that paper, as you mentioned, was the rising rate of antidepressant monotherapy in bipolar, and that's a We'll have to have a separate podcast on that, Joe, and maybe bring a number of colleagues on. That often turns into a very, um, we'll just say, multipolar conversation, I'll say it that way. (laughs) But let's talk about antipsychotics. Let's come into this category. Um, I think we're in agreement that they're categorized together, but they truly are heterogeneous agents with respect to their pharmacology, their safety, their tolerability. And it's interesting because the so-called antipsychotics of the future may not even you know be uh, blocking d2 we'll see what happens but you know well let's talk about what we have now we have antipsychotics widely prescribed you've cited this pharmacoepidemiologic paper rising trajectory in people with bipolar and also of course being used in major depressive disorder as well joe when it comes to the risk one of the uh observations that was made with weight gain was that perhaps people with mood disorders are more liable to weight gain than people who have a psychotic illness. What do we know about mood disorders and TD? And maybe we should just start off with maybe a definition for TD and then talk about this, this sort of disease unique vulnerability in mood disorders.
2: Yeah, so we, we've sort of been taken on the mantle from our colleagues who've mainly studied schizophrenia or primary psychotic disorders over the years. Uh, uh, and if you go back to Kreplin, people with primary psychotic disorders are thought to have brain dysfunction, not just in mesocortical and mesolimbic areas, but in basal ganglia. So in the pre-pharmacology era, we thought of schizophrenia patients as being more vulnerable to mood disorders. So Roger sort of asked the question, are mood disorder patients more vulnerable to mood disorders? Are they more vulnerable to the presumed dopaminergic hypersensitization that can occur from long-term antipsychotic use? And we we never asked these questions when I was a resident. not all that long ago, because we use first-generation antipsychotics. We use them sparingly. We thought of them as valuable for psychosis, valuable for mania, almost always short-term. And nowadays, as we've seen the emerging literature in both unipolar and bipolar disorder uh, in unipolar patients as effective adjuncts to monoaminergic antidepressants, in bipolar patients as monotherapies, or sometimes adjuncts to mood-stabilizing drugs. Um, we we have them in place longer term. So in the way we have to conjecture, are our patients uh, at higher risk for TD compared to who? Compared to the general population, compared in a comparable way to schizophrenia, compared to patients who are on short-term use of dopamine blocking drugs, compared to patients who take tight D2 binding agents, the tightest of which tend not to even be thought of as being all that pertinent for the depressed phase of bipolar Disorder, you know, risperidone did not perform very well in the STEP BD trial for, for bipolar depression. The first generation antipsychotics, if anything, we worry might induce depression. There's data, the old, the old uh, data from Ricio Towan and Carlos Serrate looking at um, uh, perphenazine. Uh, we published a study showing a higher chance of depression after mania with haloperidol than with olanzapine. So I think a lot depends on which agent in which patients for how long, I hate to be so conditional, Roger, but you know me, I always sort of try to lay lay out, you know, you can't make a a broad generalization. I think it's fair to say, and you tell me if you agree or not, patients with mood disorders bring to bear a a variety of risk factors for TD, some of which may likely be intrinsic. We just haven't really thought much about the striatum and the basal ganglia in primary mood disorder patients. We know that there are genetic overlaps with schizophrenia and is there an endo phenotype that speaks to a, a, a movement disorder vulnerability in some mood disorder patients, maybe in chronically mood disordered patients, mood disorder patients with psychotic symptoms, with family histories. So that, that's yet another podcast or two or three. But I think it's fair to say as a class, compared to the general population, this is a, a group that, that comes with higher risk.
1: You know, so, so many good points there, Joe, and your points well take, And There's so much heterogeneity. I think we're always looking for a nice bumper sticker slogan as a way of summarizing everything. But that's a that's a best uh, inaccurate and likely perilous uh, when it comes to some of these issues like trying to have a blanket statement. But yeah, I think that taken together, people with mood disorders, at least it's, it's a replicated observation, maybe at a greater risk than, a safe, as you said, person with psychotic disorders. Certainly, uh, when we look at sociodemography, uh, a replicated finding has been higher age as well as female uh, sex being a uh, a greater risk. Uh, you know, here in Toronto, Joe, one of the observations I've made, we have about 150 residents in psychiatry here in our program, big group, and they come into my clinic, you know, the rotations uh, in mood disorders, and they just reflexively give everybody a, an anticholinergic with the antipsychotic, with bipolar disorder or major depression. And when I asked them, where where did you learn that? They said, oh, well, I was told to do this prophylactically to prevent against EPS. And I think what's important, just to this theme that you've raised, Joe, about heterogeneity, is that EPS is heterogeneous and EPS is a collection of neurologic adverse events, movement disorders in some cases, but, but neurologic adverse events, at least from a nosology perspective, can be acute or tardive. And so acute, that playlist for me, has akathisia, has dystonia, and sort of Parkinsonism, although kind of a little bit, maybe more than acute, sometimes it's a few weeks and Tarai for me is a few months downstream so 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 it's important to recognize these are these are these are categorized together but they're likely neurobiologically quite different just simply based on the temporality the timeline but in the case of anticholinergics they make ataxia and td worse they're the treatment of choice for acute dystonia, and they are a treatment option in people who have Parkinsonism. So I, I, I agree with this. I don't know, is this a, is this a Toronto-based phenomenon, uh, Joe? Are you seeing a lot of anticholinergics given to people for akathisia and TD?
2: Yeah, I think 30 years ago, when most patients were going on high-potency, first-generation butyrophenones and, and the, the expectation of uh, Parkinsonism and the concern of dystonia was such that we might want to think about that. I don't know if we, at the outset, started a drug like benzotropine, but we sure used it a lot. And part of the advantage of some of the newer atypicals is, we hope, less. Um, but you know, I, I was saying before that the so many various side effects we have to be watchful for. I'm not sure I would agree that you should just prophylactically put everybody on a potential antidote so much as um, being, being watchful of things that can occur. So, so here's a bugaboo of mine. When it comes to movement disorders, I don't think there's a shortcut. And, you know, 25% of the boards in psychiatry is neurology, and I think this is where it pays off. Psychiatrists, in doing a mental status exam, even by telemedicine, really want to be attuned and, and observant of movement problems. Um, whether you're formally doing an Ames exam or you're you're you're, 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 even just informally. I'm sitting on a Zoom with a patient yesterday, and I see she's shifting around, and I instantly realize, you know, she's akathetic, and we have to talk about that. These are things you can't do on a telephone conversation. You lose something by by telemedicine. It's true, but but I think we have to be very mindful of the the different kinds of movement problems that can come up. So it's not just tardive dyskinesia. It's not just Parkinsonism. It's not just the potential for dystonia. Um, it includes tremor. And I've been almost every day saying to somebody, put your arms out like Frankenstein, like this, because I need to see if it's a postural tremor, because that speaks more to a potential toxicity of a drug like lithium or valproate versus a resting tremor. So roll back your Zoom screen all the way and have your spouse hold the camera, because I, I think we have to make those. Observations and not just make assumptions about which movement problems can occur. It's hard to do with telemedicine. I mean, one of the things we want to talk about today in the COVID era is what could get lost in translation. But more and more, especially as we're using second generation antipsychotics in non psychotic disorders, in adjunctive treatment for unipolar depressed patients. Um, uh, I'm, I'm finding myself just reflexively not prescribing anything, but reflexively staring at people's mouths um, and looking for, you know, any indications that will occasion the the, the statement for me. You know, I, I notice that you're moving your tongue more. I notice you're grimacing more. Your shoulders are like, and we need to devote some time to to assess that.
1: Yeah, it, it, great points, Joe. You know, what I started many, many years ago is at each and every visit, I ask patients about abnormal involuntary movements. It's part of my uh, uh, patient EMR checkbox, if you will. It's So every visit I ask. I do an names an abnormal involuntary movement scale, at baseline, and I do it periodically, which usually means a couple of times per year just to make sure everything's fine, more frequently if needed. And I have found that gives me an opportunity to, A, Evaluate safety, but also gives me a, uh, an opportunity for for literacy. I'm, I'm, I'm educating my patient on a side effect to keep an eye out for, it. and I ask them about what they've noticed over the last you know few weeks. Uh, what are some aggravating factors? Have friends or loved ones or roommates commented on anything? And it's a very simple. The aims, as you know, Joe, is it just takes moments to do. It's a very quick evaluation, and with telepsychiatry now ushered in to great extent now by COVID just a reminder and I I always have to try to make sure I can see my patients full uh, picture because about a third of the time their face is not affected. I mean, we we know that the facial region is the most affected two thirds of the time. And on zoom calls, that's when we see people's face, but if they can back the camera, sometimes we see other areas affected that may not be the face I've here, you know, here in Toronto, not a whole lot different than New York. The winters are cold, get a little slushy and icy. It's hard to get the boots and socks off in the winter. But one of the advantages of home-based assessment, it's easier, more convenient to have shoes and socks off. And I find it a good yield to look at the hands, the feet. Use some provocation maneuvers, like tapping fingers, uh, to really look for not just the common region. Of course, common things are common. So the face, perioral region, looking for these sort of uh, you know abnormal movements. But also using provocation maneuvers to see whether the extremities are involved. Is there any kind of uh, trunkal involvement or you know the axial muscles involved? Um, and I just saw someone just just recently like that who had what appeared to be axial involvement of their um, uh, with TD. So it's it's something that I have found quite frankly to be quite straightforward to do uh, through telepsychiatry. Here's one, Joe. I'm sure I'm, maybe I'm alone in this. I don't think so. I was never asked to assess TD by telephone before, Uh, uh, but before COVID happened, many of my patients don't have broadband or Wi-Fi, And I was asked, and you want what, Joe? It's a bit like, remember the days when we used to have those bold out maps rather than a GPS, you're trying to travel somewhere. I, I actually had to rely on a really good history, Joe. And guess what, Joe? It works, taking a very careful history. Do I like it? No. Is it a perfect way to assess for TD? Clearly not. Uh, but I was able to get a confident history just by taking a solid history. What are you exposed to? What are the movements? Where are they affecting you? What are the aggravating factors? What's the timeline? It turned out i seeing the patient about two weeks after that, and I, was, and I was actually quite pleased it actually worked out okay. Obviously, it's not the best. It's not the ideal, but this is not an ideal time. Am I alone in telephone-based assessments? Have you done those too? Uh, I, I do. I do when I have to, uh,
2: but you remind me of the ways in which we have to, at some point, be able to lay eyes on a patient. I was seeing someone for a consultation who had been just doing telephone appointments with their doctor uh, really since COVID began and had only recently started seeing this doctor before that. And so I I, I don't do new consultations by telephone. It's just too much gets lost. So I'm I'm on, on a screen with this patient and I'm uh, struck by by the choreatathotic movements and the serpentine you know the tongue twisting that's going on and and you know patients with td are often unaware of it and so i will often ask you know I, i'm just meeting I have to ask you are you aware of any abnormal movements in any part of your body what do you mean you know, well you know is it hard to control your tongue uh, i once asked that of a patient and and she said, um, oh yeah, the, you know, my damn upper plate. And she she pulled her dentures out. And you know we have to ask that your names exam. Do you have any dental problems? So there's all kinds of things you pick up. But when I was speaking to the the, the clinician who'd referred me this other consultation, and I very gently and politely said, you know, you know this patient has a a fairly high AIMS score and is just a lot of oral buckle movements and grimacing. And, and my colleague said, well, I've been doing telephone appointments with her. So. Uh, you know, that, that that's where you, you, you have to lay eyes on the patient. And brings me to the notion of everything we do, as you know, is a risk-benefit analysis with every side effect. The, the adverse effects of atypical antipsychotics, including TD and metabolics, are no different. So I'm quite proactively looking for these things. Um, so I, I want to diagnose them accurately. If someone looks like they're bradykinetic, I wonder if they're Parkinsonized. I'll ask them to get up and walk up and down. I'll ask them to get somebody to please move their arm like this. Um, if I think they really need an in-person assessment, we'll figure something out. But, you know, that'll drive the thinking on whether if it's Parkinsonism, do I want to alter a dose or add, if not an anticholinergic, maybe a drug like a amantadine, or do I want to switch agents? So there's just so many decision points that come along the way. I, to, to, to prophylactically say, I'll give you an anticholinergic and cross my fingers that if you get a movement problem, it won't be a tremor, it won't be tardive dyskinesia, which anticholinergics can make worse. Uh, it won't be, you know, it, it'll either be a dystonia or, or Parkinsonism. It, it's, a, it's a Hail Mary to do that. You, ha- you have to evaluate the patient because there's such a broad differential
1: could agree more, Joe, and, and that's a great segue into the treatment of TD, and my experience has been picking up on this anticholinergic observation that there's so many mistreatments of TD. I've seen everything just about tried, ranging from anticholinergics. I've seen people even recommend uh, CBD and vitamin E and baclofen, and I mean, the list seems to be endless, uh, none of which really have, you know, those 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 treatments have proven to be safe and effective in TD. One of the basic dictums of medicine is that we, we, we tend to uh, only screen and, and diagnose for things that we can treat, and, and more recently, we've had FDA-approved VMAT2 inhibitors, um, and there's now a couple of VMAT2 inhibitors that have been FDA-approved um, for people who are having TD and are eligible for such a product. Joe, how do you actually differentiate between the two? We have the deuterized tetrabenazine, and we also have valbenazine.
2: Yeah, so this also goes back to the notion that vesicular monoamine transporter is this chaperone protein presynaptically in neurons that's involved in sort of bringing or shepherding dopamine particles to uh, to be exocytosed in the synaptic cleft. And the the concept of TD, we still think, mainly is a supersensitivity the postsynaptic uh, dopamine uh, binding, and long-term exposure, is another risk factor, long-term exposure to an antipsychotic, even a second-generation antipsychotic, may predispose by, by this sensitization. So the notion that goes back to tetrabenazine, um, a VMAT2 inhibitor, or even older drugs like risperidone, is if you could limit the exocytosis of dopamine, you might lead to a re- Modeling architecturally of of this postsynaptic dopamine supersensitivity, and 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 maybe d- diminish or ameliorate if not actually treat tardive dyskinesia. So tetrabenazine's been around a while. It's used in Huntington's disease, choreiform movement disorders. It's not an easy drug for psychiatrists to prescribe, or even neurologists for that matter. It's multiple times a day. Um, has a risk for causing depression from dopamine depletion. So it it was quite the hail uh, hail breakthrough when two variants of tetrabenazine came along in about the same vintage around 2017. It seems like it was just yesterday. But we have one form of tetrabenazine that's got a valine molecule attached to it, that's valbenazine, which uh, uh, essentially metabolizes to a specific Isomer of tetrabenazine that's called the plus alpha dihydro isomer, and that's where the action is at. that is the active devalinized moiety derivative of tetrabenazine that has a pretty long half life, like 15 to 20 hours. So it's a once daily dose, comes in two doses, 40 or 80 milligrams a day. Uh, it's a 3a4 substrate, uh, so you don't want to give it with potent inducers or inhibitors of 3a4. And it is intended at at those two doses, 40 or 80, to to essentially ameliorate TD symptoms. Um, uh, Dramatic efficacy, I'm sure on on the internet, there's lots of videos that one can see, uh, even on uh, 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 GMEDED, we have some videos, I think, looking at before and after experiences of patients that are taking, say, valbenazine. The deuterated form of tetrabenazine, you know, deuterization is, is heavy hydrogen. That makes for a longer half-life. So deutetrabenazine is a twice-a-day medicine, unlike valbenazine once a day. Uh, got a wider range of dosing, goes from six milligrams twice a day up to 24 milligrams twice a day. A um, uh, Little broader spectrum, it targets VMAT2, but it also targets uh, D2 receptors and 5 HT 7 receptors may give a little more variability in how much D2 occupancy you're interested in in going after. And it's also a drug metabolized by 2D6 if the pharmacokinetics or the potential drug interactions ever were to come up. Uh, But it is our other option. They both have a a substantial single digit effect size, number you to treat single digit substantial effect size in diminishing AIMS scores. So for someone where you've made the judgment that the benefits are substantial and, it's, it's worthwhile to continue with a particular atypical antipsychotic. Stopping the antipsychotic, regardless, doesn't necessarily ameliorate TD. But if we have the perception that the benefits are substantial, we wouldn't necessarily even want to stop an efficacious drug. And we might say to the patient sooner than later, I'm aware of these movements, let's introduce a VMAT2 inhibitor either, based on uh, you know those parameters we talked about to see if we can make the treatment uh, both, both safe and effective.
1: All excellent points, Joe. And you know what's been so important to me when I look back at the use that I've had with these types of drugs is with valbenazine, and it's just so important in mood disorders, and not just mood disorders, but psychotic disorders as well. We don't see a worsening of depression or mania or psychosis or suicidality. Obviously, that's a relevant issue. We don't want to worsen. So you talked about conventional psychotics worsening symptoms like depression, for example. And there are clearly Differences, um, you know, when it comes to some of these drugs, and so clinicians need to be aware of that. That there are clear differences. And valbenazine did not have that uh, that 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 risk. Um, now, one of the points you mentioned, Joe, I want to pick up on. I have over the years endeavored to remove offending agents. If drug is offending, my solution is to remove it. I, I think I the, the 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 best outcomes I've had in my practice is when I when I stop things that aren't working or causing harm. But interestingly enough, and in keeping with what's been recommended and also subject to meta-analysis, stopping an antipsychotic that is associated with TD and switching to an alternative, that has not turned out to be a large effect size intervention. Uh, TD tends to be a kind of a recalcitrant, persistent phenotype. It just keeps going on. So stopping the offending agent has not turned out to be a reliable, robust, you know, predictable, better avenue for patients. And, and in your in your comments a moment ago, something really critical is that the way, for example, valbenazine was developed was it was added to pre-existing agents, whether they had a psychotic illness like schizophrenia or a mood disorder like bipolar disorder. So it's important to recognize this in that context. But, you know, I, in fact, for me, Joe, I, I have been underwhelmed with switching to another antipsychotic as a robust alleviation strategy uh, is your experience different? Uh, how do you handle this? Or do you, you stop being a psychotic?
2: No, no. I mean, you know, there's the arguable data in schizophrenia that clozapine may have some value in managing TD. There's some date, debate about that. There's certainly a preference for, if you can, leaning toward looser binding D2 drugs. quetiapine, you know, for example, as compared to risperidone. But the calculus involves so many things. If we're treating bipolar depression, or even unipolar depression, Not all agents have been studied for efficacy, so we really can't make class effects. Um, So There's so many factors that have to go into this, and the the worst outcome of all is if I have a patient uh, with a psychotic depression, with a refractory depression, someone for whom, let's say, olanzapine plus fluoxetine for treatment-resistant depression is highly efficacious, um, I will go to great ends to make that as manageable as possible because the alternatives can be, you know, disastrous, as, as I'm, I'm sure we've seen. We think about in bipolar patients a 15-fold higher risk of suicide completions, standardized mortality ratio, uh, and loss of 10 years of life expectancy. So, you know, th- I think it's important for the clinician to, to, with every medicine, but especially here, to be, to sort of take stock and inventory of what is this drug doing for you, so we don't just capriciously make decisions. I tell patients I think of medicines like employees, and let's do a, a performance evaluation. What is this drug doing for you? Because if the patient themselves isn't aware, they have less of a sense of investment in why they're taking it. If I'm taking insulin from my diabetes, I know why I'm taking it. If I'm taking a cholesterol medicine, I know what happens if I don't. If I were to stop a medicine that could be truly life-saving, you know, they have to know what the, what the consequences are. And just a last point on this is, once you're well, I've always been a believer in the notion of sustained wellness as a predictor of diminishing a chance of recurrence. So I, I like the MacArthur Foundation definition of recovery, and you've got to get a good four to six months of wellness. So when, once you're better, I will tell the patient, let's not breathe on this regimen. Don't change your socks. Don't, don't go to new storage and just just let's let you stay this way for 180 days because statistically, if we can make it to day 181, your chance of this illness coming back is 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 much much less than if we mess with things sooner. And even the randomized discontinuation studies in bipolar disorder of the atypicals say if you stop an, an adjunctive atypical sooner than six months, you get a much higher relapse rate. So I breathe easier after that. At least that time frame has gone by before contemplating changes.
1: Couldn't agree Mark Joe. We only have about a minute or two left, um, but I really, really like ending on this point because I have found in the data, as you know, shows that when people stop vmat 2 inhibitors, the groups show worsening of symptoms. In fact, they quickly go back to a, a baseline severity. So we're talking about, in many cases, we're going to need to keep uh, patients on the treatment for a, uh, you know, indefinite period of time. Of course, these things are always periodically reassessed. Um, my hope is, Joe. This is my hope for the future. You know, we have some very new pharmacologic agents that are being looked at as potentially antipsychotics. I think we'll tar one agonists, in uh, this. You know, it's maybe lumateperone, the newer antipsychotic. But I think there's really a belief system that some of the future treatments in psychosis mania may not necessarily have to be D two blocking. That might have implications for lowering the TD burden in the future, but we'll see what happens when we get there. But Uh, I think our time is just about up, Joe.
2: Any last remarks? Time is always short. Internet-based assessments make it feel even shorter. So I'd say to clinicians, choose wisely. Make make sure you have a checklist in your head of the things you need to cover um, in the limited time that you have, both in terms of target symptoms and this notion that whatever you're prescribing has a clear benefit so that you're weighing risks and benefits. And we now have options. So we don't just say, well, let's avoid a medicine with a side effect. If that was the case, we'd never take anything. So we want we want to really strike the right balance between efficacy and tolerability, knowing that we have ways to manage adverse effects.
1: Couldn't agree more, uh, Joe. And, and I'm going to finish with a comment on what I call the implementation gap. And that is there's a gap between what our evidence says we should be doing, and what we actually do as clinicians, and if we can just close those gaps, it improves the quality of care for people. And um, we now have treatments that are safe and effective for people with TD across, you know, not just you know, mood, but also in the psychotic sort of population. And look, I think uh, it's it's frustrating when we have side effects uh, with our patients. Patients are frustrated. We're frustrated. And it's even more frustrating when we can't treat the side effect very effectively. But here we can. So I think there's there's, there's optimism and there's uh, you know, a good probability for success. So it does warrant systematic screening and assessment and diagnosing of TD in our patients. Joe, as always, we could talk for hours. I know we could, but we're gonna keep it brief, keep it somewhat uh, on time. Thanks for doing this with me. Pleasure, Roger, always, thank you. And thank you to everybody for joining us uh, for this podcast on mood disorders, antipsychotics and TD and hope you will continue to enjoy the series of podcasts that are offered through clinicaloptions.com.
0: Thank you very much, Dr. McIntyre and Dr. Goldberg, and thanks to you, the listeners, for joining us today. As a reminder, to view other programs on TD, please click on the link in the show notes. As always, thank you for listening.